I served um, three terms on what is called DEXCOM. You don't even know what that means. I didn't at first. It means District Executive Committee. It is the ruling group of this district. Now, I tell you that because at the beginning of it all, we would hear reports about what's happening in the district of the Alliance. And every time there was something called new ventures. And I remember just being perplexed right there. What are new ventures? And time after time, this guy called Regan, he would be all excited about the new ventures. And some of us would look back at him and say, but what are new ventures? Is it like church planting? And he would say, sort of. Is it like apostolic starts? Sometimes. And over the years, I came to understand that this has been a wonderful initiative in the district whereby people have sought what the Lord is guiding them into and New Ventures um, sort of disciples them into a posture of, of learning, a posture of listening, a posture of discerning what God might be doing and what he might be inviting them to join into. So if you wondered when Darren said he was a pastor with a new venture. That's what that's all about. And if you'd like to learn more about that, go ahead and talk to Darren and uh, pray along with him and go to the district website and just discover all of the new ventures. They are ways that the church is growing that are um, new and innovative and being blessed by the Holy Spirit. So Thanks for being here, Darren, and your, your crew, and we'll look forward to the songs at the end. I'll get through the talking so we can get back to music as soon as we can, right? So and we're, we're sort of rounding the corner to the end of our study on prayer, and so I, I'll take the fall. We're finished with prayer. Done with prayer now? Let's get on to something else, right? No, that's not true. We are not done with prayer. Um, we will always continue with prayer. But we're taking a pause in this thinking about prayer, and we will be moving on to some other ways that we believe we can grow. So I want to bring us back to one of the psalms that are called the Songs of Ascent as we round the corner to the end of our, our short study on prayer. And if you remember, three times a year, the children of Israel went to Jerusalem for a feast, for a festival, and so these were the songs for the journey. These were the songs they literally would sing, would chant, as they made their way up to Jerusalem. Um, one time for barley harvest, one time for wheat harvest, one time for fruit harvest. Here is what I think is possibly one of the most beautiful um, poems in scripture. It's from the Psalms 133, one of the songs of ascent, and here's what it says. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon. I love saying it that. It's Hermon in English, but if you're Jewish and speak modern Hebrew, it's Hermon. Do you want to say it? Hermon. Don't you love that? It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. It is to extol the beauty 
of unity that the psalm is, is calling us into this wonderful space of talking about how wonderful it is when people get along. How many moms long for times when your kids just get along? How many times do you say, can't we all just please get along? And my children are now in their 30s and 40s, and quite often we say, why can't they just get along? I go play golf with my boys, and about halfway through, about the eighth hole, I want to say, why can't you guys just get along? And they want to fight, they want to argue, they want to cheat, they want to stand on the green and go, one, two, three, four, yeah, four shots. No, that wasn't, that was six. I counted six, it was four. Shot, you call me a liar? And all of a sudden, what seemed to be a lovely family outing, a dad with his sons, becomes a brawl. And we have to worry that the uh, ranger's going to come catch us and seize our carts and send us to the clubhouse. Why can't we all just get along? And in many, many circumstances of life, why can't we just get along? In politics, why can't we just get along? Why do you have to always take the opposite view because your party is not the one that is making the decision? When we have all kinds of relationships in our workplaces, in our schools, why can't we all just get along? That's kind of what the psalmist is saying. He puts it in the positive and says, I love it when brothers get along. I love it when brothers and sisters are in unity. So how does he um, sort of portray it? He said, there are two things that come to mind that for me are a beautiful image, a beautiful picture of what it is to be in unity. The one thing he says is that it's like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard. Now, for some of us, we might think, I'm not sure that would feel great, but what does that mean? Even Aaron's beard um, coming down upon the edge of his robes. In, in the, the tabernacle of Israel, so in the desert and so on, um, the holy place, uh, the holy encampment, um, which is the, the holy place, the holy of holies, the, tab- the, the ark, the table, and the priests who serve there, they would take a mixture of beautiful perfume herbs and they would mix them with olive oil and they would pour that fragrant um, substance all over everything that was in that encampment, including the priest himself. And so the priest would have this delightfully fragrant presence that when anyone walked into the tabernacle, they were consumed with the beauty of the, of the fragrance. How many of you have gone up Appleby um, where the lavender farm is? Some of you have, right? And you know when you open your windows and you think, oh my goodness, the wafting in of that lovely, lovely fragrance. And the psalmist says, when people are in unity, it's sort of like that. It's like it is a fragrance that consumes the situation is it is a fragrance that overwhelms anything that might not be as attractive and then the second thing that he says reminds him as a picture of unity is the dew of hermon you should go to israel if you ever get to go to israel it's a wonderful country full of history full of geography 
And way in the north of Israel is Mount Hermon. Um, it is snow-capped, um, which is unusual in Israel. So in a land that is absolutely dry, um, where you need to drink lots and lots of water so that you're not dehydrated, um, where you're worrying about the scorching sun, up in the north is this wonderful picture of the image of unity that comes to the psalm, and it is the dew that is coming down from that wonderful high, cold, cold place, and sort of descending like dew over the whole land. And David says, unity is like that. Find anything that, that is delightful to you and see if it's not a wonderful picture again of unity. So I, I want to springboard off of this, and we will come back at the end and simply read it again. But obviously the point of the psalmist is that unity is a high good. Unity is to be pursued. I want from that to leap over to the New Testament and to the great high priestly prayer of Jesus. And we have said um, that the Lord's Prayer that we pray this morning is the Lord's Prayer. Um, it's called the Our Father, if, if you're from, from a, a tr tradition different from ours. Um, but many have said that John 17 is actually the Lord's Prayer. This is actually the prayer that Jesus prayed. And so as we sort of finish off this short study on prayer, I want to ask the question, when Jesus prayed, what did he pray? Right? I mean, did he pray the Lord's Prayer as we know it? Or what did he pray? What did he pray for? And who did he pray for? So we will find that he was praying, he says, not only for his immediate followers, but for all of those who believe because of the testimony that they have left. So this is actually a prayer for us. We actually know what he prayed for us about. Um, here's a, a quick little story that's kind of interesting, I think, if not curious, if not coincidental. But uh, Andrew came back from Thailand, and in passing, he mentioned a book that he said he'd been reading. He said that to you all as well. And he had the book, but I paid no attention to it. Um, I told him when he was finished with it, pass it on to me, and if he thought it was good, I'd like to read it as well. So a few days later, I follow various people, teachers, and so on. And so in, in the course of doing some YouTube uh, apologetic kind of, kind of little snippets, um, I heard about a, a writer, and the writer um, is someone that I had never heard of before. And his name is Tom Holland. And he intrigued me. He, I listened to a lecture, and Tom Holland gave this wonderful lecture um, that is actually kind of the core of this book, the book called Dominion. And so I thought, I'm going to get that book. And I began to read it. It's a slow read. You can see I'm still only halfway through. But as I began to read it, I began to be enthralled. Um, he's an incredible historian, and it is... It is a whirlwind trip through the whole history of the Christian church. If you have not, you know, settled on your summer reading, I highly recommend this. So I came into the office, 
Andrew was in the kitchen, and I went in and I said, Andrew, have you ever heard of this guy, Tom Holland? And he said, that, that's the book I'm reading. And I'm going, how uncanny is that? Is it a coincidence? I think not. So my granddaughter was over the other day, and Annabeth um, pointed to the book and said, I was reading it, and she said, by Tom Holland? Spider-Man? <laughs> he writes books? And Annabeth said, there's probably more than one Tom Holland. <laughs> and yet there was. So, When Jesus prayed, he was praying for the disciples, and he was praying for us. What did he pray for? Like, what was on his mind? What was on his heart? Because you were on his mind and on his heart. We were on his mind and heart. What might he have prayed for? And uh, I mentioned this book because if you would like to know the way that we tried to be the church for a couple of thousand years, uh, it was a roller coaster ride. We were all over the map, presumably understanding what Jesus wanted for us. So in the early years, um, Jesus might have prayed that they would even survive, right? I mean, you know the story about Jesus going back to heaven and the angels saying, well, well, what's the plan now? And Jesus said, well, I've told 12 guys, 11 guys actually, sorry, um, to go tell people. And, you know, the angels said, and what if that doesn't work? And Jesus said, hmm, that's the only plan I have. So he might have prayed, Lord, let them survive if he was talking to his father. As we go through the early centuries of the church, um, we find that there was incredible debate over truth. So maybe he would have prayed, Lord, let them get clear on what's truth. Let them get clear on what to believe. And so we have church councils because they, they were arguing over what exactly was it like to be Jesus? I mean, in what way was he human? Did he just appear to be human? Um, did he become human? Was it the beginning of his existence when he was born? Um, what is the nature of the Trinity? And so they would have councils and, and have decisions about what they believed. And maybe that would have been what was on Jesus' mind. was like, Lord, Father, make sure that they get clear on what they believe. Um, he, he might have, we might imagine, he might have prayed that they would become an incredible political entity. That, that they could somehow take over the world. And in those early centuries, that's exactly what the Christians were trying to do. First of all, they were trying to survive. And then after, after they were surviving, they got to be actually tolerated. And then ultimately, they got to rule the world. You, you, you were a Christian because you were a Roman. You were a Christian because you were born. Because they got what they wanted. The, the, the Christians... Um, had a mandate that everybody had to be a Christian. So maybe that was what Jesus would have prayed for. Wouldn't that be wonderful that the gospel of Jesus Christ would so invade the world that it would, it would be the ruling um, constitution, actually, of how people would live? Later on, the church figured out they had to actually get a little bit more precise about things and so as the centuries went by, they, they worried again about what we should believe. And they worried again that people might be going 
wandering off. And so they went chasing after people. And in the Inquisitions, they were trying to find out, do you believe the right thing or not? So as centuries came and went, the world turned on the impact of Jesus, his life, his death and resurrection. And what did Jesus pray would happen? What did Jesus pray about us now? What did he pray about us in our relationship to the world, in our relationship to politics? We came through a period of time that we would actually call Christendom, where we became the reigning religious authority, religious um, wisdom source for our world. We have now come back to a strange place where the distinction between what the church is and what politics are has actually alienated a whole generation from the church because we are messing in politics and we are telling people that being a Christian is actually being this kind of a political person. So we're still wondering how we're going to be what we're supposed to be as the church. And so we come back to the question, what did Jesus pray about us? What did he would pray would, would be true of us? So here's what he prayed. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. Two times in the great high priestly prayer, Jesus asks for the same thing. There's no other topic in that whole long prayer about which he repeats himself except this one. What is it? I pray that they will be one. Prayer for unity for the church was a double ask in the high priestly prayer of Jesus. How well have we done on the matter of unity? It still presses forward as a need that we need to listen back to Jesus and perhaps sort more of the way that we relate on a macro basis to ourselves on the screen of um, how well does this reflect our unity? How well does this reflect um, that we are one? Now, what, what did Jesus mean when he prayed? Because when I read that, I say, okay, I get that. Holy Father, keep them in your name. The name which you have given me. And I, I, I pause and say, what name? What, what name did Jesus get from the Father? And earlier he says that he has also given them that name. So he says, Father, I, wa I want you to keep them in your name, the name you have given me, so that they may be one. So the, the secret sauce for unity somehow is the name that the Father has given the Son that he claims he has given us. And we want to say, what is it? I, is that a magic name? Is that if, if we could discover that name, would we discover how to be one? What is the name that the Father gave to the Son? And I searched and searched to no avail. There's no name. It's not Yahweh. It's not Yeshua. It's not Lord. It's not, what is it? Well, and, and back to the songs that we've already sung, the name is a huge concept in the Bible. It is not a specific appellation. It's not specifically, oh, it's Ian. It's Andrew. Oh, 
It's not a name. The concept of the name of a person in the Bible is that his name or her name is a complete disclosure of their disposition, their demeanor, their character, their intentions. Many stories in the Bible are understandable because of the meaning of the names. The book of Ruth is a beautiful love story, but it, it, it all hinges on what their names mean. It begins by telling us that there's a man called Elimelech, and he's married to Naomi, and they live in Bethlehem, Judah. Elimelech means my God is king. Naomi means pleasant one. Bethlehem, Judah means the house of bread and praise. How idyllic is this? Their very names talk about the kind of life that they get to live. So they have two sons, and they call them Malon and Killian. Do you know what those names mean? Sickly and pining. So my God is king, who's married to the pleasant one, living in the house of bread and praise, have two boys whose names, if they reflect the conditions they are born into and under, disclose the fact that there is actually a famine in Bethlehem, Judah. And Elimelech, because there's a famine, takes his family and he takes them to Moab. The blessing for Israel was in the land. And the man whose name meant, my God is king, disobeyed his mandate and took his family away from the land of blessing. The saddest line in the book is, it came to pass that the Lord blessed Bethlehem Judah with food. And so, remember the story about how Naomi came back home, and as she was coming back home, people said, is this Naomi? And she said, don't call me that. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Now, the story has a wonderful, wonderful ending, um, and you can go home and read that for yourself, but... Again, the concept of, of name is huge. When Jacob is wrestling with the angel, he says, tell me your name, tell me your name. And the angel, which is actually an, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, probably, says, why do you want to know my name? And then Jacob's name is actually changed. Jacob, whose name means struggler, um, later gets his name changed to prince, to, to someone who has a different relationship with God. So when Jesus says, I have given them the name you gave me, and I want you to keep them in that name, what he's praying is that they will have a full understanding and knowledge relationally of God himself. And the secret sauce for unity is the thorough and intimate knowledge of God, that we actually get to know God as our Father, we actually got, get to talk to God. We actually get to live our lives completely in light of who he is and what he has done for us. So Jesus says, here's what I, I'm asking you, Father, for this, for my followers and for their followers. Keep them in your name. Keep them well um, contained within the understanding of who you are and how you love them and how you're a covenant God who is always faithful to them and that, that you are a God who has disclosed over and over and over what you're like. Help them to trust in that, to lean into that so that they may be one even as we are. Now there's again where it gets more profound. 
Um, he says, if, if, the, if they will understand who you are, and I have spent my time with them, giving them your name. I, I have spent my time with them, leading them into the knowledge of you that they now have. And I want you to keep them secure in that knowledge because that will be the magic sauce of, of their oneness, of their unity. And the way that that's going to work out is that they will be one even as we are. And there you get into that kind of mysterious language that we tried to sort of uncover a little bit a few weeks ago. So I, I suggested to you that prayer is like a dance um, with three partners who move as one. And the sense that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in a dance with us. And sometimes one of the three will cut in. Sometimes the Father will cut in, and he will express things to us that are in his heart. Sometimes the Son will cut in. Sometimes the Spirit will cut in. But we dance with three who move like one. And now let me complicate that even more by saying we are a partner who is multifaceted as well. We are a partner who is many. And so what Jesus is asking the Father for is that as he and the Father are one, we mystically can be with them in this wonderful dance. And as we dance with the Father, we dance with one another. So if it wasn't bad enough that I suggested you should be a dancer with God, now you've got to dance with one another. So the application of this talk will some dan- be some dancing. If we can get some music going, we can get some good dance. Not, not today, but what's the point? Um, while I was with them, I was keeping them in the name which you've given me. So, Father, I'm asking you to disclose to them all that I have revealed to them by my person, by my teaching. And as they dance into that, not only will they dance into our dance with them, but they will enter a dance with one another. The unity of the church that Jesus prayed for is like a beautiful, graceful dance between people who are not necessarily ideally suited to be partners with one another. And yet we are. We we get to be this moving, becoming body of people so that our oneness is expressed in the way that we love one another, the way that we relate to one another, and the way that we will see in a few moments the world notices. I love the church. I've spent my whole life in the church. Sometimes I'm not sure I love the church so much. Sometimes I wonder what God was thinking when he decided that the church was the way he would move forward his gospel. But I do love the church. I love the church in its all wonderful expressions, whether it is in, you know, under a, a thatched roof, whether it's under a, a tree in Africa or India someplace, whether it's in a cathedral. We live in Guelph. And we have the beautiful Basilica of Our Lady that towers above the city of Guelph. It's worth a drive to Guelph to see the Basilica. It is gorgeous. I've been in churches like that. I've been in cathedrals. I've been in churches that are completely white. I've been in churches that there's never a white man to be seen, where I have been ridiculed because I am white. I've been in Nigeria where little children chase after me and say, hey, we noche, we noche. And I said, what does that mean? Oh, they're just calling you a white man. And I delight in that. 
I've been in churches that um, are attended by choirs and choirs of people. And everywhere I go, when I encounter a church, it is delightful. Whether it's an underground church in Pakistan, um, where believers are hiding from their persecutors. Wherever it is, the church of Jesus Christ is something to behold. And it's incredible that it now continues to grow and grow and grow and become. And there is something that I experience when I happen into a group of believers. Um, I remember meeting with some believers in a, in a French African country and what they do every time a visitor comes is they, they gather under a shade tree and they ask for les nouvelles, the news. What news do you bring us about churches that you have come from? What are, what are our brothers and sisters doing? What, what are they saying? What are they knowing? At times, as I've had the opportunity to visit believers, and you, you feel like, I, I have nothing to bring. Um, and they say, but you came. And because you came reminds us that we have brothers and sisters everywhere around the world who know that we're here. We've not been forgotten. So the church is something to behold. And we, I'll be critical of us in this, we have tended towards a low view of the church instead of a high view of the church. And that's a great sort of binary distinction that will help us understand our brothers and sisters. Um, to have a high view of the church, if we begin there, means that we elevate the church and probably have a sacramental view of the church, the grace um, comes via the church. And that was a large part of the struggle of the growth of the church through the centuries. The high view of the church says that in order to get grace, you go through the doorway of the church. That's why if you have your babies done, as people have asked me, um, it means different things. If you have your, your baby done in a Catholic church, it's a sacrament. Grace is given by the baptism, whereas as we experienced last week, our low view of the church, which doesn't demean our view really, but a low view of the church says it's not that the church dispenses grace. It's that individuals access grace and they collect in the church. And so we would be called a low church group of people. But I want to say that it's one of those situations in which it's more of a both and. Is the church sacramental or non-sacramental? I think the answer is yes. Then in, in many, many ways, um, we ought to elevate the view of the church and say, actually, Jesus is specially present in his church. It's not just a group of people who have individually committed their lives to Christ. It is a mystical body. It is the church invisible as well as visible. It is the church in heaven and on earth that we rejoice in. And so all the more, as we have opportunity to fellowship with people from high church traditions or low church traditions or halfway between, you know, like the alliance tends to be, then we say we're all, there's one faith, one Lord, one baptism. 
We gather together every time we can in celebration that what Jesus prayed for is being satisfied as the church expresses its unity. The other part of the prayer that I will um, bring us to as we wind this down is this. He says, I don't ask on behalf of those alone, but for those who believe in me through their word. And here's the second time. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That's that mystical dance. That they also may be in us. Not just we individually will be in them, but we collectively will somehow mystically, as the church, be part of the wonderful dance with our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here's the result. So that the world may believe that you sent me. Isn't that astounding? Like, how will the world believe? By powerful preaching of the gospel? No. By political manipulation? No. Um, By polarization? No. By power? By beauty? No. The way that the world will believe God sent Jesus is that the church is one. Why don't we worry about that a lot more? Why don't we pray about that a lot more? Why are we willing to walk to the other side of the street when there's someone who doesn't dot his I's or her T's crossed just the way that we do? Why do we find more and more ways to parse the church? Why do we find more and more ways to declare others heretics when they don't sort of do everything the way that we do. Now, is there a core body of belief? There is. I mean, historically, the Nicene Creed is a wonderful place from the fourth century um, that we now keep on saying, this is really the crux of Christianity. And so on that ground, we can joyfully join together and joyfully celebrate that God is making us one. He is making us a unified body. Jesus prayed for this two times out of all the things he prayed for. He meant it. So be ready to be reconciled to one another, first of all. Be ready to fellowship broadly, secondly. When we do anything we do with the churches of Milton, show up. If you meet someone from another Milton church, shake their hands warmly and say, okay, you subscribe to the Nicene Creed, right? Ah, Of course they do. I think they do. I'm not being serious there. But there are churches up and down the street. We need to know them, and we do. We are getting to know them more and more. And some are high church folks, and some are low church folks. Um, Chris Snow was the rector of Grace Church down the street. He died a few years ago. But he delighted me because he was a high church person. And I'm not a high church person, so I didn't understand it all. But one day, in a gathering of of the ministerial, someone asked him to pray for grace. And he said, oh, no, no, I can't pray, um, you know, instant prayers. I, I, I can't pray just informal prayers. I can only pray the prayers of the church. And I thought, wow. How carelessly we kind of say, okay, I'm gonna, dear Lord, whatever comes to mind, and we pray it. Chris was saying, no, the prayers of the church are holy sacramental prayers. And I began to understand some of the ways that his nuanced Christianity could inform mine, 
could, could actually bring joy to mine and actually called me back to some creeds and, and confessions that through the years, the centuries of the church have been a way for the church unitedly to say, this we believe and this we claim, this we, we're living into, this, this we're hoping for. I had, um, several years ago, a, a woman asked to come and see me. So she came to my office, and I said, I, I haven't met you before, but I think I've seen you in church for the last couple of months, right? And she said, yes. I have to ask you to explain something to me. And that's always scary, Because right? I can rarely explain things. I can talk long enough that people think I've tried to explain them, and then they walk away and say, he doesn't know either, right? <laughs> but she said, here's what I want to know. Every time I come to your church services, I cry the whole time, start to finish. Tell me why. It's this prayer. When someone encounters the body of believers who are in a dance with one another, in partnership with a dance uh, with the Trinity who, who dances as one, something happens and people notice it. So it is not profoundly different than just being who we are actually, living into the truth of who God is and we are. And when we do this, and people are in need and they are hungry, they will say, okay, what is that? Just tell me what that is. And God moves by his Holy Spirit. The stories of revivals are replete of people who are drawn into, like the, the Hebrides revivals in Scotland, um, Sinners would come weeping into the church and fall um, on their knees asking for forgiveness. You think, how in the world does that happen? It happens when people are in a real vital relationship with God and they are in a real relationship with one another by which they are unified and Jesus' prayer is answered and the world says, there you go. I wasn't looking for politics. I wasn't looking for programs. I wasn't looking for buildings. I was looking for that. Can you tell me what that is? So come back with me to Psalm 133 and just um, celebrate how wonderful it is when we just avail ourselves of what God has already done for us. And he says, come on, let's get on the dance floor. You all together, all of you together, people that you didn't think he wanted on the floor with you, and the Trinity, and the world will believe. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down on the edge of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing. Father, I pray that they will be one, just as we are one, that the world will believe that you sent me.